0: Welcome to Seize the Day, a podcast from the Duke University Marine Lab. I'm Lisa Campbell, and today we have an episode from our Conservation and Development series. In it, students explore the complex role of non-government organizations, or NGOs, in conservation and development. They're particularly interested in the relationship between small, locally-based NGOs and large international ones. You may recognize one of the voices, Hafa Lobo, the host of our PhD series took my class in January 2020, and today's episode was her first effort in podcast production, undertaken jointly with Jessie Zhao. I hope you enjoy it.
1: I'm in a small town in northeast Brazil called Lucena. I am looking out towards the ocean, its aquamarine waves extending far beyond the horizon. These warm waters are known to be the home for several species of whales, dolphins, sea turtles, and many other amazing creatures. It is also a valuable source of food and livelihood for the people living along its coast. Well, my work is motivated, principalmente because we have a region here. Romilson da Costa Santos, a man who has lived here his whole life, shows me around a small house, the home of his self-built NGO. The place is breathtaking. The walls and floors are made with repurposed plastic bottles and the windows with recycled glass, letting light peek through their colorful panels. Outside, broken pieces of porcelain discarded in nearby industrial fields have been transformed into intricate mosaics, one of a dolphin and another of a whale. Everywhere you look in his yard, trash has been turned into something beautiful and functional.
2: We this entity with this objective of the community.
1: Seu Romilson, his wife, founded this local NGO called IMAS, <laughs> Instituto do Meio Ambiente e Ações Sociais, or the Institute for the Environment and Social Action. But this isn't where Seu Romilson started. As he shows me around, I notice several calluses on his hands. He tells me he got those for many years of fishing.
2: So, as I'm a native of the community, we started to observe that the do actions
1: He tells me he started noticing the degradation of rich ecosystems around the community caused by anthropogenic action. His biggest passion is the mangroves, which were increasingly polluted and getting destroyed. He decided to pursue an education to do something about it, which led him to where he is now, a geography teacher and founder of a small local NGO. I ask him to describe the focus of his NGO,
2: conscientização.
1: He tells me he strives to raise public awareness and sensitivity to the environmental problems his community faces, especially for children because, quote, it is much harder to demystify an adult's behavior regarding their relationship with nature, end quote. He engages the kids by mixing art and fun. They hold workshops to teach teenagers artisanal work and how to repurpose the trash they collect from the mangroves. Their trash mosaics have also gained some local recognition, so sometimes people in the region hire imas to decorate their houses. All the money they make from the art is distributed among those who helped. Despite all this work, last time we talked, he was disappointed that one of the fishermen had come to him with an interesting fish and he did not have the money to preserve it. You see, so Homilson always asks fishermen to bring him cool stuff that they accidentally catch so he can teach the kids about them. He has collected whale bones, turtle shells, tiny sharks in jars all sorts of fish and invertebrate sea creatures, but as with most of the greatest projects he has in mind, lack of funding prevents him from fulfilling his plans. So Homo's can't really plan anything long term, because he never knows when he will have money. He just adapts to his goals, using the little he's got, and pushing forward. <laughs>
3: Welcome to our conservation and development podcast. I am Jessie. And I am Hafa. And today we will explore the role of big international non-governmental organizations or bingos and local NGOs in promoting conservation in developing countries. Let's dive in.
1: Okay, before we get
3: started, Why should we care about how NGOs affect conservation practice in developing countries? Sure. So NGOs are non-profit organizations of various size, mission, and approaches, and have increasingly filled governance gaps in conservation efforts worldwide. Due to many historical developments that we will not go into in this podcast, many NGOs accrued a lot of power and legitimacy among the global conservation community. Unequal power balances have led to unintended consequences. All of these big international NGOs, or bingos, have their headquarters in wealthy northern countries, and their activities in the developing world have been controversial. On the other hand, the transnational and non-profit nature of bingos seems particularly relevant in dealing with issues that respect to no borders, where nation-states and private businesses have failed. Despite mistakes of the past, they are still incredibly relevant and active. They're not going anywhere, and understanding possible ways to improve practice is of utmost importance.
1: Now, let's go back to Sohomilson for a second. I think there is a lot in his story that can help us understand some of these issues.
3: I agree. It sounds like Sohomilson's NGO does amazing work. How come he has such a hard time getting funding? Well, there could be many reasons for that.
1: For one, he told me he has a really hard time writing up projects and submitting grant applications, given his limited administrative capacity and bureaucratic skills to complete all the paperwork. That means he never writes technical reports detailing the results of his efforts. He also doesn't have much time. When he's not working as a geography teacher, so usually uses all his free time to implement his ideas on the ground. Finally, he doesn't have a mission statement and he can't afford to pay salaries, so he has no staff to help. He does all this, really, with his wife and a handful of temporary volunteers.
3: Hmm... Do other local NGOs in Brazil experience this too? You know, I was surprised
1: to find out that yes, Sujomiso's situation is not that unique. According to the latest report by the IBGE, a Brazilian body responsible for all types of censuses in the country, Brazil currently has 237,000 NGOs. Out of those, the category that includes environmental NGOs accounts for only 0.7%. For these types of organizations, the national average for paid staff, so not counting volunteers, is about two people. There is a lot of regional variation, so, for example, the highest is in the north, with an average of eight paid staff per NGO. The north, however, is at the heart of the Amazon forest, and it is a region famous for its environmental activism, home of Mendes, Marina Silva, and many other famous environmentalists. To Homiusu's region, the northeast, has an average of only one paid staff. So his NGO is actually bigger than the average. Wait, how can you have a one-person NGO? Well, this is only county paid staff. It is my impression from the NGOs I've had contact with in Brazil that they often have a handful of dedicated volunteers, but all the fundraising they're able to get are spent in executing the projects or paying the bills. I couldn't find any aggregate data on that. But as a Brazilian myself, it is my perception that the majority of people in the country, like in much of the developing world, are struggling to make ends meet. So donating to environmental nonprofits is not on their radar. So most of the local NGOs depend on government funding, private funding, or external funding. Such donors need to perceive these NGOs as legitimate or, you know, good at what they do in order to donate money. And it can be hard to gain legitimacy if you don't have the funding to prove that you can do good work. There's also corruption. In Brazil, for example, there was a major corruption scandal back in 2011 reported all over the news where hundreds of Brazilian NGOs were exposed of being a cover for money laundering. Almost 1,000 NGOs had to close their doors due to lawsuits and investigations. It is understandable
3: that the public would be skeptical to donate their hard-earned money. I see. Well, in that case, international NGOs should have an enormous advantage, right? They have great name recognition all over the world and astronomical budgets. For example, according to their own websites, The Big Three, that is WWF, The Nature Conservancy, and Conservation International, had a combined budget of $1 billion in the year 2019. With hundreds of satellite offices all over the world, aren't they in a much better position than local NGOs?
1: That's right. Ruben
3: Nario Palacio
1: had some insight about that, since he's from Colombia and worked for a bingo there. Ruben is now a PhD candidate at Duke University in the Environment Program and the Science Director of the Colombian NGO Fundación Cotonos. Let's hear what he had to say.
2: Well, when you are an international NGO, First of all, you have already some credibility, some reputation to make partnerships with corporations or mostly with government to do conservation work. The other advantage that you have is that you're funded, so you come with already budgets that can pay for staff, and that is very difficult to do for Colombian NGOs, especially if you are just starting, getting to a place where you can have, you know... uh, paying salaries is really, really tough.
3: Well, but here he is saying that the credibility is helpful in forming partnerships with government and corporations, not individual donors.
1: That's right. Even when there is legitimacy, it is hard to mobilize individual donors in countries where the general public simply does not have a lot of pennies to spare. WWF Brazil, for example, which in 2018 won the prize of best environmental NGO in the country had more than two-thirds of its funding come from WWF International in 2019. 12.6% came from corporations, and only 1.3% came from individual
3: donors in Brazil. In comparison, WWF USA gets a whopping 39% of its donations from individuals. That equates to about $120 million. Wow. Okay, so these bingos have a lot of credibility and can bring in a lot of money. But they have trouble implementing solutions on the ground. One aspect of conservation bingos often fail at is consulting the local communities who are most affected by their actions. As Mac Chapin asserts in his 2004 World Watch article, the attitude of these bingos is often that they have the money and therefore they are going to call the shots. Chapin is a director and fellow from Pew Charitable Trust and has extensive experience working with indigenous groups in Central America. He writes about how, in the early 2000s, relations between conservationists and indigenous people became increasingly tense, and in many strategy statements, the WWF would simply avoid talking about involvement with indigenous people altogether. Conservation projects are often decided without input from the local people, when in fact, local people and bingos may have very different priorities. For example, according to Chapin, many indigenous people tend to emphasize the need to legalize their tenure claims to land And make a living through sustainable use of their natural resources, while also protecting their history, traditions, and cultural identity. Bingos, on the other hand, feel the need to establish protected areas excluding local resource users in the name of protecting wilderness.
1: These are really good points. There has been excellent work published by social scientists like Nancy Peluso, James Fairhead, Melissa Leach, Roderick Newman, and many others that show how conservation has in many places. Been used to disenfranchise local minorities, exclude local resource users, and blame them for environmental degradation. Rosalind Duffy's research shows how these issues do persist. Many of these horror stories happen due to top-down approaches very often between international NGOs and national governments without input from the local people. Paluso, Newman, and Duffy, for example, have written about the so-called militarization of conservation which has become particularly problematic in Africa, where sharing the land with big mammals is very challenging for the local population, but the animal's charismatic characteristics and international adoration has encouraged a conservation-at-all-cost mentality, including removing local people from their historical territories and shoot-on-site policies.
3: Didn't Becca have something to say about this?
1: Yes, she did. Rebecca Horan is currently a PhD student in marine science and conservation at Duke University. She's an American with vast experience working for both international and local NGOs in many developing countries like Kenya, Tanzania, and South Africa.
4: When I was working in the field, I had the benefit of working for several different organizations to see how they operated. And then also, the conservation and development community is pretty small, so I also got to interact with those working for other local organizations. And I think one of the things that really frustrated me was the lack of interest in consulting, including or promoting the leadership of local populations who really have much more understanding and awareness of the needs of local populations and of the landscape and how it's changed over time, yet they were often viewed as the problem or the impediment as opposed to the ones who should be making decisions and leading the charge. Okay.
1: But while I think it is important to acknowledge awful things have happened and still happen in the name of conservation, I would like to think that bingos have taken these criticisms seriously. Even if at times these management strategies still fail in practice, I think it is fair to say that the conservation community, including bingos, are more attuned to the importance of taking local people's perspective seriously. And the human dimensions of conservation are now incorporated into pretty much every Bengals mission statement. Rubén, for example, had a different perspective than Becca's.
2: Now, there's the thing about relationships with the local people. And, you know, there's some cases around internationally about horrible relationships that they damaged, that they came and they imposed worldviews or something. I think in the Colombian cases, there's not so many of that. In fact, they're doing, at least they're doing a good job.
3: Obviously, that is not to say it hasn't happened, but that is the perspective of one person. Maybe it's fair to say that many in the conservation community learned from mistakes of the past and are trying to do better?
1: I think that's fair. And although Becca, for example, spoke about the shortcomings of different NGOs she worked for, she also thought
4: her experience with one specific bingo was a
1: positive one.
4: They have field teams who are nationals of the countries in which they work. It's those elements of building the skills, the passion, the will, the desire to engage on these important efforts at that local level where they're not going to disappear back to the U.S. or the U.K. or Australia in two years' time. They are going to live there. They are going to be able to continue making progress through time that I think is really valuable when you're talking about addressing major long-term needs in the conservation and development field.
3: Okay, but even if there are successful stories like Becca's, local exclusion is just one of the challenges NGOs face when bridging local and international scale, right? What do you mean? Well, simply put, local people don't have a chance to participate in the making of global conservation policy and priorities. Research shows that conservation priorities are increasingly decided in a global setting, meaning international donors, and therefore international NGOs, mostly from wealthy countries, are the ones who define what conservation is and what it should look like. Researchers that study international meetings where conservation targets and priorities are decided find that even though increased participation from different groups is stated as a goal, this rarely happens in practice. Hmm, why is that? Well, Noella Gray, for example, a geographer at the University of Guelph in Canada, analyzed the dynamics and discourses coming out of IUCN's World Conservation Congress in 2008 and found that conservation is increasingly being framed at the global scale, and only the bingos have power to produce knowledge at that scale. So local groups face many challenges in participating, incorporating items in the agenda, or changing the priorities being set. Therefore, these priorities typically lie in global issues, or so-called green issues, like ozone depletion, diversity loss, and climate change. But that is not what developing nations want to prioritize, right? They are more interested in things like pollution control, sewage treatment, drinkable water, erosion control, before they can worry about, say, biodiversity loss. I think that's fair.
1: We do again need to be careful not to generalize here, though, as there are many other reasons
3: why bingos can have a hard time working in a local context, even if their goals align. Oh, I read about that. Christina Balboa, an associate professor at the Mark School of Public and International Affairs at City University of New York, coined this the paradox of scale. That sounds interesting. Care to elaborate? Well, she basically explores how NGOs who are highly successful at one scale fail to achieve long-term success at another. For example, international NGOs have all these strengths we just talked about. The credibility, name recognition, easier access to funding, technical and administrative capacity, and also Western scientific knowledge, which is a type of knowledge more appealing to international donors and the global conservation community. However, all these things that give them such great global authority and maybe initial access at the local level ultimately hindered their local effectiveness. On the other hand, local NGOs will have the cultural and ecological knowledge necessary for a successful long-term self-sustaining project, but lack the credibility to get funding and the technical and administrative capacity to conform to the increasingly homogenous rules of this global conservation society, like writing technical reports and relying on scientific knowledge, even if they hold more local knowledge. Oh, I see what you
1: mean. So Homeo Sanzanjo, for example, is doing work in one of the poorest regions in Brazil, By being a teacher, he has higher education than most people in the area. And even he lacks the time and capacity to apply for grants or write up projects and reports that would increase his name recognition.
3: I mean, he doesn't even have a website. Right, and the same way he has a hard time accessing the global scale, bingos may have initial access at the local scale, but have a hard time creating long-lasting success. That makes me think, though. What about bingos hiring and training local people? Wouldn't that help bridge the divide?
1: Well, yes, that is certainly an option. But even if Seu homie was hired by a bingo, he would need a lot of training to learn the technical and administrative skills required to conform with their rules. He doesn't speak English, and it will be difficult to find anyone in that region who does. So even if you're bringing in nationals, it would probably be someone with a very different background and certainly not as familiar with the place. And there are other hurdles too. I asked Ruben about that, Since he was a Colombian working for a bingo in a Colombian office,
2: we had to be careful how to present ourselves, you know, that that locals don't think that we're full of money and that this is the Gringos come with all the cash to help solve all your problems. But we needed to emphasize yes, this is an international NGO, but it's the Colombia chapter. Then each project has a limited budget on its own, so there's no infinite resources here.
1: So the name recognition thing seems to be a double-edged sword. Bingos get the money, but there's often the suspicion that they might not be working to benefit the country they're acting in, but rather their country of origin. Or Gringo's Club, as Ruben puts it, referring to white foreigners.
3: Hmm, and as we just discussed, these fears are not unwarranted, right? I mean, not just in conservation, but in other areas as well, there is a strong sentiment in many parts of the developing world against Western influence. During the Cold War, the United States, for example, supported many coups d'etats in Latin America, removing legitimate governments and effectively installing military dictatorships in countries including Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, Paraguay, and others. So,
1: these relationships actually go back to colonial times, and the sentiment is that wealthy countries always have alternative motives in the developing world. As a Brazilian, I perceive the fear of foreign interests and control to be widespread. And while there is research to back up everything you mentioned about NGOs' often problematic activities, there is also research that shows how NGOs can be used as scapegoats to cover up for states' interests. For example, researchers from the University of British Columbia found an increasing trend in states, both democratic and non-democratic, passing laws restricting NGO activity. Particularly in cases where they were campaigning against natural resource extraction, the NGOs are framed as agents of foreign influence, and even local NGOs who are associated with these bingos can suffer significant reputational costs.
3: That reminds me, didn't your president recently use these tactics as well? Ugh, right, my
0: president.
3: The region so, uh,
1: Bolsonaro accused NGOs of starting the Amazon fire crisis last fall, and his Ministry of Environment accused Greenpeace of spilling the oil that has been mysteriously contaminating the Brazilian coast for months. All without evidence, of course. The current situation in Brazil is the perfect example of how complex all these power dynamics can be. Brazilian scholars like Miguel Benin and Andrea Zuri show how, beginning in the 70s and 80s, Brazil was the target of scathing criticisms and international pressure, the center of a discourse that deemed the country incapable of protecting the lungs of the world, the Amazon forest. As Zuri shows, the military then, in power at the time, developed a documented strategy of framing the development of the Amazon as necessary for national security, sovereignty, and economic development. They worked to undermine environmentalists and NGOs, lumping them all in the same threat category as communists. In 2001, leaked documents by Afua São Paulo, the equivalent of the New York Times in Brazil, showed that some military factions still promoted the fear of foreign interference at the Amazon Forest as a way to stay relevant, undermine certain minority groups, and justify further development and extractive practices. This nationalist discourse, however, is now embedded in Brazilian politics and has been used by presidents and politicians across the political spectrum, not just the right. As a Brazilian, I think it is fair to say that these fears have lingered and are shared by a significant portion of the population, particularly when it comes to the country's natural resources. But now with a government that is openly against protecting the environment, that complicates things even further. Since taking office, Bolsonaro has scaled back efforts to combat illegal logging, ranching and mining, pressured Congress to roll back environmental policies, and made several controversial claims about indigenous communities, their rights, and their demarcated territories. How else are environmentalists in Brazil supposed to resist, if not at least partially, with the help of international NGOs? Sounds like the country is ripe for the use of a boomerang strategy. (laughs) Quite possibly. Care to explain to our listeners what the boomerang strategy is?
3: Sure. The boomerang strategy was a term coined by political scientists Margaret Keck and Catherine Sikink in 1998 to explain a strategy in which minority groups and local NGOs, unable to apply pressure on their government by themselves, use their transnational activist networks to build that pressure from the outside through bingos, for example. One of the cases they use in their book is from the Brazilian Amazon, where Brazilian activists, scientists, and bingos formed a transnational network that successfully pressured the World Bank to follow its sustainable development commitments, such as taking environmental risk assessments seriously and the demarcation of indigenous territories in its lending provisions. The very Brazilians who are afraid of foreign intervention, particularly when it comes to the Amazon. Yes, this is indeed very complex. It seems like there is such a fine balance. Right. Right. I think even people who have experienced these foreign dynamics firsthand
1: still have mixed feelings. I asked Becca what her thoughts were, and she seemed very cognizant of her own role. Here's Becca again.
4: I did my best to be an empathetic and receptive field assistant. And that meant that I tried very much to listen first to my colleagues from Kenya, Tanzania, and South Africa. And true, we came from very different experiences and very different backgrounds, but I think it was generally well-received that I wasn't coming in with my own agenda and unwilling to listen to their perspectives. And it's surprising how Small measures like this can really make a difference in how people feel about the work that you're doing and their readiness and willingness to move forward or to solve problems with you uh, when they feel like their voices are going to be heard.
3: It sounds like Becca has spent a significant amount of time reflecting on these issues. Did she have any particular take on what she or Bingo should do to bridge these differences in background or even take advantage of different skill sets to strengthen projects? She did, actually.
4: I really think it's these sort of pieces, be they gender, age, race, religion. It's thinking about who people are, where they're coming from, what skills and expertise, capacity they have to offer, and targeting the right people in the right positions. So for example, for myself, I'm a white American woman. I don't think I should remain working in the field because I have a very particular view and I'm not going to be able to collaborate in some of the ways that are necessary based off of cultural and gender barriers. Instead, I can use a lot of my skills, be they in research, science, communications, management from the U.S. And how can I support the people who are best suited to be on the ground? And how can I leverage my skill set to support them?
1: However, she also highlights the contradiction of how important having been on the field is to her current understanding of these places and how she's more equipped to contribute from afar precisely because she has a good understanding of what it's like on the ground.
4: So, I guess that's the trade off really is I've had the privilege of working in the field and working closely with field teams where I greatly respect the measures and lengths they go to to deliver good work and enact change. And I can understand that sometimes (laughs) there are barriers that come up, you know, whether it's a sudden storm event or an election that really changes the approach or the timeline, that sometimes folks who haven't had the benefit of working in in developing contexts miss out on.
3: Huh, that is very interesting. So it's not just about each person bringing their own strengths, but understanding the cultural norms of the communities she worked in to leverage different skills and support each other. This reminds me of the paradox of scale I was telling you about. In many of the cases Dr. Balboa uses to exemplify her theory, something called bridging capacity could solve simple misunderstandings that undermined otherwise successful projects. For example, she cites the case of a major project by Conservation International in Millen Bay, Papua New Guinea, where the staff was discouraged to attend a very popular local bar. It turns out that this was a place people candidly discussed their opinions on the project, but by not being there, the staff missed an opportunity to engage with the public and hear their concerns. Conservation International also failed to understand the local officials' cultural preferences of being briefed and updated in person, and instead flooded them with technical reports which are recognized and, you know, demanded at the global level, but not as appreciated on the ground. She highlights many instances where the global way of doing things took precedence over the local ways, but these little things, misunderstandings, could have been avoided if the actors involved had worked on their bridging capacity, the ability to understand and dedicate their organization to reconciling intercultural differences. That is an interesting concept. Keck and King seem to describe
1: the same idea when talking about the relationship between the local Brazilians and the international partners who helped pressure the World Bank to enforce its environmental commitments. They say, quote, the relationship that developed between the bank campaigners and the rubber tappers was mutually beneficial. It took the teeth out of the accusations that rainforest destruction was simply a concern of privileged northerners. Over time, it he helped activists from distant political and social universes to understand better their different perspectives on the same problems and to build elements of common understanding. What about Ruben? What were his thoughts on this? He seemed fairly optimistic about the prospects.
2: More partnerships, probably, with local NGOs could be very beneficial. They could work much more on transfer of knowledge. You know, they have their expertise running that, and there's so many other local NGOs that are struggling. could be a good program, these international NGOs, you know, helping develop local NGOs.
1: And remember Seho Muso? I also asked him what his opinions were on bingos. He certainly recognized some of the names, like Greenpeace and WWF.
2: Ah, todas as ongs elas são importantes, né? Para as
1: comunidades, para a sociedade. He's saying, quote, every NGO is important to communities and to society. They each have their role to fulfill according to their skills. I hold them all in high regard. I devote myself to this work. I love what I do,
3: and I'll do it until my last days. Wow. Well, on that note, I think we have given our listeners enough to digest, and us too. <laughs> For real. But before we go, we would like to thank our listeners and encourage everyone to embrace complexity and think more critically about the world's issues. We barely scratched the surface, but you can find detailed citation for all the research we mentioned in the podcast description.
1: We would also like to thank Rebecca Huron, Ruben Dario Palacio, and Ramilson da Costa Santos. Our podcast was greatly enriched by your voices and insights. Thank you for taking the time, and thank you for all you do this trabalho
3: maravilhoso.
1: merece todo sucesso do mundo.
3: This podcast was written and produced by me, Jessica Zhao, and me, Rafaela Lobo. Thank you for listening.
0: You've been listening to Seize the Day. Visit our website at sites.nicholas.duke.edu slash day for more information on this and other episodes. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Seize the day Pod. Today's podcast was edited by Hafa Lobo. Our theme music was written and recorded by Joe Morton, and our artwork is by Stephanie Hillsgrove. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please feel free to leave us a rating in Apple Podcasts.